Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, if you're somewhat new to the Bible, you'll find your New Testament. Galatians is the first short letter. So if you find your way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, find your way to Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then there is Galatians. In the chair Bible in front of you, it's page 1032. 1032. We're continuing our solas series, the five solas, so-called, of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solas Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And I've been assigned the second sola, Sola Gratia, which means grace alone. The notion that our salvation rests solely and only on the grace of God. Uh, but grace alone is not simply a notion, is it? It's not just an idea, because reformational theology as an idea saves nobody. Grace alone, I want to argue this morning, is the heart of Christianity. I think this is the case that Paul is making in the, in the entirety of his letter to the Galatians. And so I want to share some thoughts with you on sola gratia from Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18, and we're going to read to the end there in verse 29. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us to see the beauty of your son this morning. May you even bring some from death to life. Through the preached word, may your Holy Spirit be here, granting new life, new birth, even this very morning. And may you grant us all strength by your spirit and in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm convinced that, that biblical Christianity hinges on where you put the yes but. This is what I mean by the yes but. There is an impulse in all of us to yes but the gospel. To hear about this notion of being saved by grace, the very idea that salvation is a free gift, that it's accomplished solely by Jesus Christ, applied solely by the Holy Spirit, that it's God's work alone, that our works contribute nothing to the salvation equation. In fact, the only thing that we contribute to salvation is our sin, the sin which makes salvation necessary, 
we hear that and it, 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 it doesn't sit with our flesh. It feels a little counterintuitive, if not a lot counterintuitive. It doesn't sound right. There's a reason why you can only find the notion of grace, real grace, grace alone, in true Christianity. No other religion or life system in the world has the um, idea of grace embedded in it. Everything else is a works-based religion of some kind. There's a, a heaven to get to, a nirvana to reach, enlightenment to achieve, and these are the steps. Now, Christianity also has steps, of course. We have commandments from God. But what makes Christianity unique, what makes Christianity utterly different from every other religion and uh, spiritual alternative in the world is that Christianity says salvation is by grace alone. Now, we love that intellectually, but very often our emotions or our, um, our pride gets in the way. And we want to come along and kind of shore up that message because it doesn't, it sounds a little rickety. It sounds a little iffy. It sounds like it gives people permission to sin. And, and we say, well, yes, grace, but, and we want to add something to the message. We want to bring a, a scaffolding of law to this notion of grace along. Um, and this is what's going on in Galatia, actually. This is what drives Paul to such passionate links to stress the centrality of the gospel. The Galatian church has been infiltrated by a group of legalists, um, the Judaizers who have come in, who have said basically, yes, 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 grace, but also you need to adhere to the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to ethnic Judaism and religious Judaism to also be a part of this kingdom community. The Judaizers came along to yes, but the gospel. Oh, sure, salvation's by grace, but you really need to get circumcised and you really need to practice the ceremonial law, et cetera, et cetera. Beware the people who are always trying to add to Jesus. Beware the yes, but. Because grace is the heart of Christianity. And grace alone is the basis of salvation. This is what Kevin Van Hooser says. Sola gratia is a permanent reminder that at the heart of Christianity is good news. It's good news. Martin Luther said sola fide was the article upon which the church stands or falls. I would argue and want to add, I want to yes but Martin Luther, that's okay. We're Baptists, so we tend to do that with Luther. I would add that sola gratia is the article upon which sola fide stands or falls. Grace alone, in fact, I would argue, is the heart of all the other solas, the through line, the decoder ring for the five solas. So I've got four points for you from the text. It's one extra. Normally I'm a three-point guy. I'll give you four this morning. Each of which connects sola gratia to the other four solas. So it's a grace that we even have the scriptures. It's a grace that God would even speak to us. And the scriptures mediate the grace of Christ, the mediator to us. Paul begins each of his letters with some variation of the phrase, grace to you. And he ends every one of his letters with some variation of the phrase, grace with you. There's something notable in that. There's something telling in that. As he's beginning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to pour out Holy Scripture, he's saying, grace is coming to you now. And then after reading 
the words of God, breathe out by the Holy Spirit, you come to the end of the letter, grace is with you now because you have taken in these words. And so the first point that I want to offer is this. Grace alone is the theme of Scripture alone. Grace alone is the theme of Scripture alone. From the Reformational tradition, from the Lutheran tradition, in fact, um, we are told there are two words from God. God has two words for us, law and gospel. And I agree with that. There are two words from God, law and gospel. But we have to keep them in proper proportion. And we have to keep them properly distinguished in order to safeguard true Christianity from sort of a a Christian-esque legalism. We have to keep the order straight between law and gospel. This is an order that appears explicitly and implicitly even in the Old Covenant history, even in our Old Testament, which Paul gives as context for the gospel in this letter. So think, for instance, of when the Mosaic Law was formally delivered and instituted. Recall that it was not given until after the Israelites were freed from Egyptian bondage. The law was not the mechanism of their freedom. What was the mechanism of their freedom? It was the prophetic word from God via Moses and the miraculous and redemptive intervention in history by God. Those were the mechanisms of Israelite freedom. And then the law was given to them as if to say, this is how you live as freed people. This is what freedom looks like, what living freely looks like. In the same way, we don't obey our way into salvation. Our obedience to the law cannot free us. Rather, the law is given in part to convict us of our bondage, to announce our condemnation, in fact, that we are sinners. When we measure ourselves against the holiness of God revealed in the law of God, we see just how uh, far we fall from God's glory. But then after the fact, after the redemptive intervention in history, by God in Christ through his cross and resurrection, our obedience to the law is now how we live as freed people. So obedience doesn't get us saved. Obedience is how we show that we are saved. Does that make sense? It's after our justification that our obedience to the law shows um, our gratitude, our, our identity, our worshipful response to what God has done for us in Christ. And this is the testimony of the entirety of the Scriptures. By works of the law, no man will be justified, the Bible says. As in verse 18 here, where Paul says that the inheritance of salvation was given. It's graciously given here in our CSB. Salvation is not based on our performance, but upon God's promise. So to understand the gospel in the context of the scriptures means understanding the place of the law, getting that order and proportion right. The Judaizers got the order wrong. They were adding a yes but to the gospel and thus conflating law and grace, muddling them together, to use Luther's words, and thus mishandling and misunderstanding the very scriptures they claim to be experts in. Look at verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. The Bible tells us that we are in bondage to sin, imprisoned under sin's power, Paul says. And salvation is not an act of our freeing ourselves, but it's 
given to us as a free gift. So if the Judaizers really knew their Bible, Paul is saying, they would know that salvation is by grace alone. Now Paul, in reminding the Galatians of the true biblical testimony about law and gospel, isn't denigrating the law. I often have to remind my gospel-centered brethren that to be gospel-centered is not to be law-neglecting. Gospel centrality is not gospel onlyism. It's gospel-centeredism. So to be gospel-centered is not to be law-neglecting or law-flippant. Right? How can we be flippant about what reveals the holiness of God? To be flippant about the law is to be flippant about God. How can we be flippant about what David himself delighted in? To be flippant about the law is to be flippant about worship. How can we be flippant about what Christ took seriously enough to fulfill? To be flippant about the law is to be flippant about Christ and about his sacrifice. How can we denigrate the law when Paul has taken great pains to declare that the law is righteous? Spilling a lot of ink by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to uphold the law as good and glorious. To be flippant about the law is to be flippant about the word of the Spirit. So we need not trip over ourselves with this grace alone stuff. The, the law cannot do what the gospel does, but the law is not bad. It is good. It is good at what it is designed to do. Uh, a few years ago, we were in Australia. Uh, I almost died. My wife's already laughing. Uh, I was, it was a speaking engagement. We had some time. Uh, we had a day off, and our host took us to the beach. And uh, there was, you know, st the rocky outcropping out into the, out into the water. And so we decided to go walk towards the water. And my wife, who does not have the part of your brain which tells you that things are not safe, <laughs> that's, that's a real thing. <laughs> Whatever that part is, it's like not there. It's diminished or it's clouded with dog memes or something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, she just kept walking and walking and walking as, you know, zero fear towards the edge of the rocky cliff. And I was following along behind her and I wasn't going to get to the very edge, but I was getting closer than inside my body's telling me like, this is stupid. What are you, why are you doing this? But then the other part of the brain was like, your wife can't be braver than you. You know what I mean? Like... If she can do it. And so I just kept walking and walking. And as we got closer and the, the water was splashing up, it was a majestic scene. And Beck's taking pictures and I'm, you know, you know, drinking it all in. And the closer I got, the more confident I got actually. I was like, oh, this is okay. This will be, I was kind of easing into the moment. You feel the spray and, and you know, I mean, it was, it, it was nice. Until suddenly randomly this rogue wave just comes crashing over the cliff and knocks us down. I mean, I, it, it turned me over, knocked me into the rocks, and the water is now spilling over the, you know, the, the rocks where we were. And all I could think was, this is how I die, because the water's <laughs> going to recede, right? And it's going to suck me out into the ocean, which is a thing that happens. <laughs> I'm not making up that this could be a thing, right? 
All I could think of was this water's going to be coming back, and I'm going to be sucked right off the edge into the, into the ocean. And so I'm running. The water hasn't even receded yet, and I'm in flip-flops, and I'm like, I'm running to try to get to safety, and there's all kinds of holes and divots that you can't see because all you just see is water. And so I'm falling into all these things, and I hear a sound behind me, and I think, is Becky in trouble? Is she crying out? Like, what if she's gone over the edge? And now, like, not only am I not brave, I'm an idiot. I left my wife get sucked out into the... That's a story to tell, right? Um, if you're a Seinfeld fan, it's like Costanza pushing his way through the fire, right? <laughs> Knocking grandma over to get out because of the kitchen fire. It felt kind of like that. But I managed to get to safety, and my legs are all bloody from the... I mean, I was torn up. One of my flip-flops got sucked out into the ocean. The sound that she was making was actually laughter. She was laughing at the whole thing. She was laughing at me. She was laughing at the experience. And here's why I know it wasn't utterly ridiculous, my fear and my feeling, because when we got to our host and we explained what happened, he turned pale. And he was like, do you know how many tourists get sucked off into the ocean like every week in Australia because they're not respectful of the nature? He felt bad that he hadn't warned us about not getting too close. And, and so I looked at back triumphantly and said, see, we almost died. We almost died. What was happening? There was a sense of confidence. As I got closer, I was, I was feeling strong. I was feeling brave. I, I was feeling careless. And suddenly nature put me in my place. A wave, rogue wave shows up, knocks me down. My legs are bloody, all scratched up. I'm scared now. The word of the law is like that. We're minding our own business. We're kings of the world. We're lords of our own lives, and then we are confronted by the reality of God, and it stops us. It silences us. It wrecks our sense of self-sufficiency. It shows us just how small we really are. This is what Paul is getting at with his talk in Romans chapter 3 when he says the law came that every mouth would be stopped. And it's what he's getting at here when he says that Scripture is imprisoning everything. The law of God revealed in the scriptures puts us in our place. But the gospel of God revealed in the scriptures puts us in the place of Jesus. Grace alone is the theme of the scriptures. And yet there's something else the scripture is doing with the law. In light of the gospel, the law is put in its place. Thus, verse 24, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And what does a guardian do? A guardian protects. A guardian disciplines. Some translations um, render this phrase uh, as the law being our tutor. It's teaching us. It's training us. It's disciplining us to yearn for Christ. And it's preparing us by its very discipline to, as verse 24 indicates, look for justification not in itself but beyond itself in the fulfillment of itself in Christ. So the guardianship of the law nurtures our yearning for grace. And it prepares us to see how this gracious justification is received, not by works, but by faith. And this is the second point this morning. Grace alone is the strength of faith alone. Grace alone is the strength of faith alone. Now, I think it might be important to speak for a minute to the idea of faith itself. And I want to tease out some principles on just the idea of faith. What is faith? One of the problems people have, I think, with the understanding of the Protestant doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, 
arises from the difficulty of defining what faith is without speaking to works. It's very difficult to define faith without bringing some kind of idea of works into it. James is, of course, right in his epistle when he says faith without works is dead. Faith without works isn't even faith. That's how connected and inextricable and tangled they are. When I was in high school, um, high school senior, I was traveling with the youth musical. I was the lead in the youth musical, believe it or not. <laughs> we turned around different churches, singing some Michael W. Smith songs. It was glorious. And every night at the end of the musical, our youth pastor would come out and he would give a gospel presentation. And he used a particular illustration for this idea of putting your faith in Jesus. He told the audience to picture the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. To, to picture the Grand Canyon, and there's a tightrope walker, and he's strung a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. And he comes to the start of the um, tightrope, and he tells the crowd that has gathered to watch his daring feet, how many of you think I can walk across this tightrope? And most of the crowd raises their hand because they think, why would someone be asking if they couldn't do this, right? And so they, they vote, and most of them say, yes, we think you can do this. And so he does. He walks across the tightrope, and he walks back. Then he brings out a wheelbarrow, and he says, how many of you think I can push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope and walk it back? And about three-fourths of the crowd, they raise their hand. Well, it's a little more difficult with a wheelbarrow, but you probably wouldn't be asking if you, you know, couldn't do this or weren't reasonably certain that you could do this. So they raise, and they vote, and they think, okay, um, we think you can do this. And so he does. He walks an empty wheelbarrow back across the Grand Canyon, and he walks it back. And he says, how many of you think I could walk this wheelbarrow across the Grand Canyon with somebody in it? And about half the crowd raises their hand. Well, you wouldn't be asking if you, you know, weren't able to do this probably. And some of them are not quite sure. That's a pretty difficult, actually. So half of them raise their hand. And he says, now, okay, so among the half of you who believe that I can do this, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Right? <laughs> and nobody raised their hand. <laughs> because nobody wanted to get into the wheelbarrow. That was the illustration of faith. It's the difference between believing that you could do it and actually getting in the wheelbarrow. Picture of faith alone. And I thought about this, even though I, you know, I was a dumb 17-year-old. I just thought, is that what faith is? Faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. I mean, that's a work, isn't it? You're doing something. You're, you're getting in the wheelbarrow. It's a work that springs from faith, but it's still a work. I'm still doing something. So I think we, we sometimes struggle to kind of slice between faith and works. And we hold to this idea of faith alone justifying, but we can't seem to separate. We have to distinguish them in some way. So how do you define faith? You say, well, it's, it's belief. Well, what, what's belief? Well, it's trust. Well, what is trust? The Bible talks a lot about faith in a variety of ways. But we get really one biblical definition, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's an assurance of something hoped for and a conviction about something which at the moment is invisible. This is why Paul uses the word promise in Romans and also here in Galatians chapter 3. The patriarchs believed in the promise. So what is faith? I think it might be helpful to think of faith alone, apart from works, as a kind of emptiness, an empty vessel or an empty hand. 
We must believe in justification by faith alone because only God can justify us. And only faith is a vehicle empty enough to rest on the infinitude of God. So faith is a disposition of weakness. It must have an object. The object of our faith may not be God, but faith doesn't exist where it doesn't exist in something. Your faith may be in yourself. Your faith may be in your abilities. It may be in some other God. But your faith must be in something or full of something. You could have faith in your religion. You could have faith in your family. You could have faith in yourself. But you can't simply have faith. The sentimentalizing, the sort of spiritualizing, the vague aphorizing of this. There was a lady in my last church who once told me in conversation, I just need to have trust in my faith more. And I thought, I don't know if that's possible. I don't, I don't know what that means. You're going to have faith in your faith? Now, I know defining faith in this way can sound strange, especially since faith alone is the article upon which the church is said to stand or fall. And I'm essentially saying that the article upon which the whole church stands or falls is the one about weakness. But I think this is okay. I think it's okay because grace brings the strength. Faith brings the weakness. And it's the essence of Christianity to say that his strength is perfected in our weakness. This is the great exchange. We have nothing to offer him but our need, our emptiness, our need for him. And we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. So we come to the bargaining table with God and we want to bring all the worldly treasures we have, all the religious merit badges, all the spiritual ribbons, all the things that we've done that might purchase this salvation. And Christ essentially says, come with nothing in your hands, nothing in your pockets, or the deal is off. All of himself for our emptiness. That's the deal. Bring your poverty of spirit your spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus says, and I'll give you everything. But if you bring one penny, one penny, you degrade the gospel of grace and the deal is off. We are justified by faith alone, but faith must be in something. And our justification is on the basis of faith alone, but our faith is on the basis of grace alone. Note verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. Faith is the basis of justification, but what is the basis of faith? Paul says, not the law. This is what the Judaizers have done. They've said, we need to bring some law to this equation. It's not an empty hand of faith. It's faith plus something. Faith and works. And it's actually worse than that because they aren't just saying you bring your obedience. They're saying you bring your Jewishness. Where does this leave Gentile Christians? They're bringing a works that is rooted in an um, ethnicity, in a cultural tradition. Verse 27, Paul says, those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, not Jewishness. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, Paul is not saying that these identities or these distinctions are erased or obliterated by Christianity. He's simply saying they're not currency for salvation. There's no advantage a man has over a woman in salvation in Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no advantage a Jew has over the Gentile in Christ. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, no matter who you are, where you come from, what color your skin is, what your background is, what religious or irreligious background you might have, you are Abraham's seed. You're a child of the promise. Our salvation is not given to us on the basis of anything we do or are. We cannot purchase justification with any social or political or religious currency. Being born into a Christian family, young people, doesn't justify you any more than being born into a Jewish family saved the children of Israel. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, it's the children of the promise who are the true Israel. And this is good news. This is good news because it means that all you have to be to qualify for salvation is a sinner. Now, who couldn't qualify for that? You are pre-qualified. All you need to receive this salvation is faith, the empty hand of faith. Faith alone receives this grace alone. In verse 18, we are told that God graciously gives us salvation. If you have a different translation other than the CSB, uh, some just say give there, but the, the word itself has the grace embedded in it. So translations like the CSB and even the King James and some others will say given in grace or here graciously given because that's the kind of gift, that's the kind of givenness that this word actually connotes. He has graciously given us salvation through the promise to Abraham. The promise of what? The promise of Christ. The promise of Christ. When it's late at night and you feel all alone and you feel beaten down and discouraged and you're not sure if you want the morning to come and you're sitting at that kitchen table with your head in your hands and you're convicted of sin or you're just burdened by life and you hear a noise behind you and you look and there's Christ in the doorway standing under the kitchen light. What look is on his face? makes all the difference in the world what kind of look you think is on Jesus' face. It's a look of grace. Which leads to my third point. Grace alone is found in Christ alone. Grace alone is found in Christ alone. Not only is Christ a bringer of grace to us, he is the only bringer of grace to us. No one has grace like Christ has grace. No one is grace like Christ is grace. J. Gresham Machen says, Christ will do all for you or he will do nothing for you. There's no in-between. There's no little bit of Jesus. If you go anywhere else, you will not find grace. You will only find more legal demands for righteousness. Like me on those rocks, the law comes about prancing, strutting its stuff. The voice of the accuser has a voice of confidence in it. And he knows how to use the law really well. The accuser will not remind you of the gospel, but he'll remind you of God's laws because he knows the spirit of condemnation is in them. Look at this area of your life, he'll say. You think God could love you when you haven't even cleaned this thing up yet? Look at this corner of your heart. 
Look how messy that is. You think Jesus wants to be your friend? You could never have the blessings of God. How in the world would God accept someone like you? The legal demands are doing their thing. They're sizing us up. They're announcing our falling short, the deficit of glory that we have. They're condemning us and shaming us. And then the rogue wave of the gospel comes and shuts up the law. It is crucial where you put the yes but in Christianity. Don't yes but the gospel with the law. Yes but the law with the gospel. Yes, I am a sinner. I freely admit it. And I can because I have a greater Savior. Yes, law, but good news. In Christ, we have freedom and forgiveness and eternal life because of his cross and resurrection. I don't have to be afraid of condemnation anymore. Martin Luther writes in his Galatians commentary, the law is not to operate on a person after he has been humbled and frightened by the exposure of his sins and the wrath of God. We must then say to the law, Mr. Law, lay off of him. He's had enough. You scared him good and proper. Now it's the gospel's turn. Now let Christ, with his gracious lips, talk to you of better things, grace and peace and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. For Martin Luther, grace is not a disembodied virtue. We're not condemned by the holiness of God only to be redeemed by some ethereal virtue called grace. God's just not like sending good vibes our way, right? We are sinners in need of salvation. Thoughts and prayers. No, grace must be mediated. Verse 20, it must be mediated just like the law was mediated. And what better mediator of grace than he who perfectly fulfills the law? so that the grace mediated to us would be perfect and perfectly holy. So then, there's really no such thing as grace. Grace is Jesus. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, it's legitimate to speak of receiving grace. And sometimes, though I'm somewhat cautious about the possibility of misusing this language, we speak of the preaching of the Word, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper as means of grace. That's fine, so long as we remember that there isn't a thing, a substance, or a quasi-substance called grace. All there is, Ferguson says, is the person of the Lord Jesus. Christ clothed in the gospel, as John Calvin loved to put it. Grace is the grace of Jesus. If I can highlight the thought here, there is no thing that Jesus takes from himself and then, as it were, hands over to me. There's only Jesus himself. And grasping that thought can make a significant difference to a Christian's life. So while some people might think this is just splitting hairs about different ways of saying the same thing, this can make a vital difference. It's not a thing that was crucified to give us a thing called grace. It was the person of the Lord Jesus that was crucified in order that he might give us himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's all of Christ and Christ alone. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, verse 22, so that the promise might be given what? On the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, the law then was our guardian until Christ. Verse 26, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ. Grace alone is found in Christ alone. It reminds me of the, the old hymn, free from the law, oh happy condition. 
Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. That worshipful response has an object. It is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him alone belongs the glory of our salvation because he alone has accomplished it. And this leads to my fourth and final point. Grace alone proclaims the glory of God alone. Grace alone proclaims the glory of God alone. If it's not grace alone, we disgrace grace and we steal glory from God. If you yes but the gospel, you're trying to rob God of glory because he has accomplished this through his son. Verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. My last church, I was preaching through this entire letter, Galatians, and when I came to this particular verse, chapter 3, verse 20, it gave me the biggest headaches. I had no idea what this meant, and none of the commentaries that I had helped me. I don't have Logos, so I couldn't look up other things. Martin Luther, the gold standard of this law grace stuff, and gold standard Galatians commentary, at least historically, says practically nothing about this verse. I was so angry. Like, this is the one I need help with, Marty. Help me out. I stood on it. I mean, it, uh, through the whole week of, of sermon prep, that this verse gave me the, the biggest headache. And this is why. Because I can't figure out, but God is one. What's that got to do with anything? I mean, I, I, I know why God is one, or I know that God is one. It's not the idea. It's the relevance of that idea to this concept, to this way of thinking. This is what I arrived at then, and this is sort of what I still think today. <laughs> I'm sure some of you seminary guys will let me know if I'm way off track here. Please wait till Tuesday to do that. The law was put in place via angels through Moses. I think this is what, what Paul's doing. He's setting up the, the complexity of the mechanism of the administration of the law. So you have the law that's given via angels to Moses. You have the priesthood. You have all of the rites. You have, there's, just a bit, there's so many working parts. It's a million gears and screws and bolts and nuts, all things involved in getting this law thing going over hundreds of years. We see this affirmed in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 38, and in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, and in Hebrews 2.2. 2, this is where we see the glory of the law coming through all of these different working parts. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 tells us that it came to Sinai, the law came to Sinai by 10,000 holy ones. 10,000. It's a pretty impressive scene. An intermediary implies more than one, or a mediator is not just for one person, Paul says. There's several links in the chain of command. From God, 10,000 holy ones, <laughs> then to all the people, and then we factor in priests, ceremonial rites, re regulations, in order to deliver and administer the law. Teamwork makes the dream work for hundreds of years. And even then, the reason why it has to keep going is because the atonement doesn't last. But Galatians 3.20 says, but God is one. 
Why is the gospel better than the law, brothers and sisters? Why is Jesus more glorious than any mediator? Because in the gospel we have God himself doing the job himself for the people himself all by himself. Consider the exhaustive and exhausting comprehensiveness and rigor that the law entails. Multiply that by the glory that radiated on Moses' face, transmitted on mountaintop via 10,000 flaming angels. Multiply that by precise measurements, a routine cycle of sacrifices, and every T crossed attention to detail. Now consider that Christ Jesus is more glorious, more precise, more fulfilling, more encompassing than all of that. And then consider that Jesus doesn't just hold up his end of the covenant of righteousness, he holds up our end too. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, and he does his job and ours. The law is good for what it's designed to do, but Jesus is much, much better. In essence, the gospel most glorifies God because it announces that God has saved us from himself, to himself, through himself, by himself, for himself. The inheritance is not based on our keeping of the law. Verse 18, God has graciously given it. Grace alone proclaims the glory of God alone. I want you to be in on this. This is the response that the sinful heart ought to have. We well know that it it doesn't often have this response, but it ought to have. The empty hand of faith saying, I will turn from whatever I need to turn from. I will jettison whatever I need to jettison. I will give up whatever I have to give up to have Christ. And if that's where your heart is this morning, I've been praying for you and I will pray for you that you will cling to Christ alone. Salvation can only come through his grace and it's only received by your faith. Your religiosity will not cut it. If anything, it will make it worse. Admit you are spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus. And you can have all the riches of his grace. His cross is for you. His resurrection is for you. It can be for you this very morning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we, we need your help to believe this. And so I do ask that your Holy Spirit would be putting the uh, uh, smelling salts of, of grace under our noses even, even now. Wake us up from our stupor. Help us to appreciate, as we ought to, what your Son has done for us. Father, I pray for any precious soul in this room who has not come to experience the new birth. I pray that you would give them the open hand of faith this morning. Open their eyes to see and their ears to hear and their taste buds to taste how good you are how gracious your son is and how saving his sacrifice is for us. We thank you for that. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he always lives to intercede for us. And we thank you that he's coming again. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.